The year was 1839, the spring of 1839. Uh, A man named Alexander Duff was appointed by the established presbytery of Edinburgh, Scotland, to preside at the ordination of a one Reverend Dr. Thomas Smith, who was being appointed that day as a missionary to India. Now, Alexander Duff himself was a missionary to India and had already been in India for a number of years, and he was back for a sort of furlough and to help his health recover. He was one to go in the footsteps of more famous missionaries that you have heard of, William Carey, or to be helped by the ministry of uh, Andrew Fuller, who stayed in London area to help support the work in India. Um, These men and women all worked for the advancement of the gospel in unreached areas. And a big part of the first places they they went to was India. Well, in Alexander Duff's address to the the Presbytery of Scotland, he said this bold statement. A church ceases to be a true church if it ceases to be evangelical. Let me quote him for you. Disclaimer. When I say evangelical, I hope you don't think of a political party or a subset of a political party. When I say evangelical, I mean in its truest sense, euangelio, those who proclaim the good news that Jesus Christ died for sinners. And that's how Duff meant it as well. This is what he says. When a church ceases to be evangelistic, it must cease to be evangelical. And when it ceases to be evangelical, it it must cease to exist as a true church of God. However primitive or apostolic it may be in its outward form or constitution. He's meaning you can have a wonderful statement of faith. You can even have a church covenant. You can even have position papers springing forth from the scriptures in your outward form. But if you don't promote the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only hope for the nations, you true, you cease to be evangelistic, which means you cease to be a true church. And then he gives an example, an illustration to prove his point. The language is a little bit old, so just tune your ears slightly. If a servant besought and obtained an increased portion of goods that he might proceed to a, to a distant city or foreign nation and lay out the whole for the advancement of his master's interest. And if instead of acting in the terms of his master's, master's desires, he chose to remain at home and appropriate all for his own private ends, what judgment would the world pronounce on such a man? Would he not be condemned as an unprofitable servant who dishonestly attempted to embezzle the property of another? And would not the master be more than justified in taking away from him even all that he had? Duff is saying that if you have a bunch of gifts, if you have knowledge and yet... Your mission is not to proclaim that knowledge to others. And you cease to be a true church. Warnell Road Baptist Church, our church has a checkered history. A lot of you are new and may not know that. Our church is 101 years old. And it has ebbed and flowed from faithfulness to God's word to faithlessness. And if you look into the history of this church, the health only comes when God's word is believed. And unhealth or a sickly church comes when God's word is neglected or the emphasis of what God's word says is de-emphasized. The mission of this church is not altered in a night or even in a year. 
But like all theologically liberal movements and churches and institutions and beliefs, it starts by progressing toward alternate views of God's word and God's mission. It's a slow drip. So just picture uh, your house. You see a little bit of, 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 of dark color in the corner of your house. It's not a big deal. Nothing's falling through. But over time, wherever that leak is coming from, it's going to get wet and the drywall will get wet and soggy. And then the whole second floor will fall down. I saw that in the issue, an episode of Family Matters, Steve Urkel one time. And I love that illustration. Church health and church mission are inseparable. You cannot say we are a healthy church and not be oriented toward the mission of God. It makes no sense. You cannot say we are a church on mission, yet neglect to see what the Bible says it is to be healthy. You cannot have a Christ-centered mission if you're not a healthy church. Lord, I want you to be a healthy church for the mission of God until Jesus comes back. The mission of God, as I've said many times in my five and a half years here, is to receive glory by converting enemies to worshipers. Or those who are opposed to him, his rebellious people, into those who serve him. Church, you chiefly exist to make enemies of God into servants of God. Which brings us to Isaiah 66, which closes out my long uh, sermon series in the book of Isaiah, which I started several years ago, took a hiatus, started back up, took another hiatus. We missed a bunch of good chapters, so I encourage you to go uh, read those. I think we stopped at like Isaiah 47 or 48. Um, But we're going to start in 66 today. This last, last chapter of Isaiah encapsulates the major themes of the book and will serve us today by answering this question. What does it look like for a church to bring glory to God among the nations? What does it look like for a church to bring glory to God among the nations? We're going to answer that in three ways. One, a church humbled by Christ's holiness. A church humbled by Christ's holiness. Secondly, A church happy in Christ's love. A church happy in Christ's love. And lastly, a church hopeful in Christ's promises. A church hopeful in Christ's promises. Firstly, what does it look like for a church to bring glory to God among the nations? A church humbled by Christ's holiness. Look at verses 1 to 6 of Isaiah 66. Let me read those. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I will also choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, let The Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of Yahweh rendering recompense to his enemies. 
To bring glory to the nations, a church must be humbled by Christ's holiness. Look at verses 1 and 2. The Lord here is juxtaposing his highness with the idea that created man would build a house for him. You see, in their own pride, they try to coax God's presence to make him think high of them. Uh, It's similar here to the Tower of Babel scene where the emphasis is on man's haughty spirit trying to make God look at him. But God says, I'm enthroned in heaven. The earth is my footstool. He looks down on humans and looks for one who is humble, has a contrite spirit who trembles at his word. We see here the, the word looks. It's not merely that God is just seeing a particular person and not seeing other people. No, God sees all. But when we see the word looks here, it means that he has favor, affection, and mercy toward people that are humble and not haughty and puffed up and proud. The enemies of God go against God's word. They don't, they don't tremble at it. They don't listen to it, submit to it. They don't care about it. But it seems like they have bits and pieces of God's word. Because it doesn't seem that they all together reject God's word. Do you notice that? God's enemies here particularly aren't pagan nations. Those that would be included. But it's those who have bits and pieces of God's word without rejecting it outright. Look here at those who he calls his enemies. They do sacrifices, but they twist them. They offer a lamb, but what else do they offer? Pig's blood. They slaughter an ox, but it's as if they slaughter a man. Meaning there's no heart behind their sacrifice. They're just doing it. Either to look good, to earn their favor to God, whatever it may be. It's like they come to church. They try to look the part. They go through the motions. They conceal their sin. God doesn't look in the same way at them as he looks like one who has a humble heart. And some, verse 3 says, they do all these things. Who are they worshiping? They're worshiping the idol. That's crazy. These are people of God. This is ethnic Israel. But they've conformed God into what they want him to be. And in their pride, they worship him like they want him to be. And God says, you're not worshiping me. You are worshiping an idol. What a statement. You think you're worshiping me, but you're not because you've completely neglected what I've said, what I've told you to do. But then in verse five, we have a word of comfort for his humble servants. Look at verse five. Verse five says that his servants are treated horribly by their brothers. Now, I think brothers here means other ethnic Jews. It has greater meaning beyond that, but more specifically in this context to Israel at this time, as they're getting this prophecy as a reminder before they are exiled and before they're in Babylonian captivity, the immediate meaning, some, what, 26, 700 years ago, is that the faithful Jewish people, the faithful remnant, are being persecuted by those of the same ethnicity, those who are also Jewish. They're being mocked and reviled. And that's what it means here. Brothers here means ethnic Jews. Their persecution does not merely come from the Babylonians or the Assyrians. Their persecution comes from within. At first, we see this, don't we, in the life of Jesus. Who mainly opposed Jesus? Was it not the Pharisees, the very ones that are to teach God's word and to know God's word? The scribes, the leaders of Israel... And this is the opposition that Jesus' disciples faced from their brothers according to the flesh, from those of the same ethnicity, from Jews. And we see that in the church today. Spiritual Israel, those who proclaim the name of Jesus, those who promote the true gospel, are often persecuted in subtle ways by those who might affirm the same kind of truths. 
but twist them. Alexander Doff, one of his greatest influences in his life was his, was his father. I love reading stories about uh, the fathers and the mothers of missionaries, if they were believing. Um, his father was a godly man. He, he lived a much more uh, quiet life than his son did. And may that be an encouragement to those of us who will not be going overseas one day or those of us who will be pastors in the States. But Alexander Duff's father lived a, a quiet life. He often was ridiculed for his faith and he refused to engage in sinful activities. And this was his response that, that Duff's biographer talks about his father. He says, this is his response. But like his divine master, Jesus, when reviled, he strove not to suffer himself to revile again. Meaning when he was reviled, he didn't let it sink him. When he was persecuted, he didn't let the arrows stay in them. He didn't let it uh, cripple him. His wanted utterance under such trials were to look at those who reviled them. And he said, poor creatures, they are to be pitied for they know not what spirit they are of. Or he would say something like this. Ah, well, it is only another reason why I should remember them more earnestly in prayer. (laughs) The day of judgment will set all aright. Friends, that's humility. That's humility. This is the humility that Alexander Duff was used to seeing from childhood. You see, God sees and looks upon the contrite and lowly in spirit. And oftentimes when we're, you know, persecuted, even as a group of evangelicals, right? We want to fight. We want to put our fists up, don't we? That's not exactly what we do. We, we, we certainly should go to the voting block and vote in our consciences as best we can what candidate will represent what the scriptures say to represent and what the scriptures uphold as good and just. But we need more of this heart like Alexander Duff's father, don't we? Because God looks upon the contrite and lonely spirit. You see, a a church full of Christ-like humility is a church that is healthy and a church that is equipped for missions. But notice where true humility starts here in this text in verses 1 to 6. Whose contrite and lonely spirit begins with those who tremble at God's word. Maybe that's a place you wouldn't exactly think to to start. The beginning and continuance of humility begins with realizing that God's word is holy, set apart, not like other worldly wisdoms, but altogether different. And it demands complete trust, not partial trust. You see, pride in the church begins with mistrust of his word. It begins by picking what you like. And what you fancy, your hobby horse, and neglecting truths that aren't popular that you don't like. So many churches start out so well and end so poorly because they start to doubt God's word. A little persecution there, some cultural wins here, some not mentioning, some harder to believe text here and there, and that trickle. Of mistrust begins and grows and all of a sudden you have denominations that affirm that you can be whatever kind of gender you want to be, to want to be despite the way the Lord designed you to be. So many churches start out so well and end so poorly because they are not humbled under God's revealed word. Friends, if you doubt God's word to some degree or or you wrestle with portions of it, uh, that's that's not exactly what I'm getting at here. All of us from time to time have difficult things in God's word that we struggle to uh, believe. I've used this example before, but I remember when I was dating Katie, she just was thinking about the resurrection a lot. and, And for whatever reason, had kind of some doubts about the resurrection. And she's actually at this time was a missionary in Sao Paulo, Brazil. We we're dating long distance. And I was so encouraged that what she was doing in order to combat her doubts was going right to the source 
And so she read the book of Psalms over and over again, all through the book of Psalms. And then God removed her doubt, gave her faith, and gave her trust in God's word. If you doubt portions of God's word, let me encourage you, go to God's word. He will meet you there. He will misplace mistrust with trust. And I encourage you to ask someone to pray for you, to sit with you. But be honest with it. That's okay. This is a place where you can do that. I encourage you to do that. But know this church. If you are to remain a church that promotes the gospel among the nations, to be a healthy, sound church, know how often that drift, that pride starts. St. Athanasius in the year in the, in the 300s, he said this to the bishops of Egypt. Talking about heresies, particularly Arian heresy, but other heresies. He's saying that each of these heresies with respect to the peculiar impiety of its invention has nothing in common with the scriptures. And their advocates, the advocates of these heresies are aware of this, that the scriptures are altogether opposed to the teaching of every one of them. For the sake of deceiving the simple, they pretend like their father, the devil, to study and quote the language of scripture. In this manner, they appear by their words to have a right belief and so persuade their followers to believe what is contrary to the scriptures. Assuredly, in every one of the heresies, the devil has thus disguised himself and has suggested to them words full of craftiness. The devil has the same tricks he's always had since the garden. Did God really say? Or the same tricks he did against when Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 years. What did the devil do? He quoted scripture. And it took a faithful, holy one to understand what he's doing and not give in to the devil's temptations and to quote scripture rightfully in its context back to the devil. Church, do not be deceived. This is how the devil enters churches. <laughs> he doesn't wave a banner and says, I'm here, one on road, to deceive you. No, he does it subtly. Crafty. And that's rooted in pride when we stop believing God's word, what it has truly said. And we want our own wisdom or the wisdom of the world, which really is the foolishness of Satan. So church, be humble. Pursue humility. Don't be like old Israel, though they were given all of the, uh, the, the ways to sacrifice, the ordering of the temple. They went through the motions and yet made it about themselves. Church, tremble at God's word. Don't neglect it. Don't diminish it. Don't suggest some unorthodox view. If you do, it's, uh, if you have a new view, it's probably not orthodox. That's pride. That's old Israel. That's Satan saying, did God really say? Friends, pursue humility. And all of us together, let's do it. Not just one of us. The thing is, though, all of us have not believed God's word as we should. Except for the Lord Jesus himself. He is the one who fully trusted God's revealed word. He is the one that worships God fully from a pure, sincere heart. Friends, he is the holy seed talked about in Isaiah 6. See, it's Jesus. Now we're, that's where humility starts. It's not merely following the example of Jesus, but that's true. It's in Jesus himself. Worshiping and submitting to him. So let that ultimate humility of saying that I am a sinner in need of God's grace. And I have nothing to boast about before the cross of Christ. Let that humility start there. Just trickle out all over this place. And may this be a place of, of humility. And so when there's interpersonal conflict in humility, ask questions. Seek to understand. Be curious about someone else's opinion. Strive to understand over being understood 
in relationships in this church. That reflects Christ-centered humility. And if you're in this church and, and, and you say, well, all these people kind of seem like they have it together. They don't seem that sinful. You just don't know them well enough. We just look good. We like to dress up Sunday morning because it, sometimes it feels weird not to. There's no rule about that, though, by the way. If you think someone doesn't deserve judgment, you also probably don't know God enough. Friends, be humbled by the holiness of Jesus Christ as revealed in his word. Never go away from it. That is how you can bless the nations. Secondly, what does it look like for a church to bring glory to God among the nations? A church that is happy in the love of Christ. A church that is happy in the love of Christ. Look at Isaiah 66, 7 to 15. And notice this wonderful imagery of a mother toward her child. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I who cause to bring forth shut the womb, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her and joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass. And the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. And he shall show indignation against his enemies. In verses 7 and 9, he, he shares, he, he uses uh, this uh, pronoun she to talk about Zion. As you see in verse 8. And then the subject is continued in the later verses to talk about Jerusalem. And the pronoun her is used. So Zion here is personified as a woman. Giving birth in a sudden, a sudden manner. See that before her pain came upon her. She delivered a son. God doesn't feel uncomfortable about language. But I do. So I won't tell you what it actually means in Hebrew, but it just means that instead of the normal kind of birthing process, a woman is pregnant and then boom, baby. God is saying that he's doing a new thing and he's doing it in a moment. He's saying that the old order will pass away and he will establish Zion, his church, in a new way. And this is what was prophesied about in Isaiah six thirteen. For those that, you, that were here years and years ago. In Isaiah 6.13 he says he's going to destroy and judge. It's going to look bleak. And he says this. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. So even when it looks bleak, it's going to look more bleak, his kingdom. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. All right. What's he saying there? Well, he actually interprets for us what he's saying poetically. The holy seed is its stump. He's saying things are going to look really bad in God's kingdom. It's going to look destitute. It's going to look from eyes of faithlessness that God has given up on his people. But guess what? There's a holy stump that remains. So you can just picture you know, one of these movies where a, a, a village, a town is just completely obliterated. And they also decide to light all the trees on fire. And it just looks so dark and dim. But there remains a stump. And God says his kingdom will look like that. 
It will look hopeless to many, but there remains a stump, which really is like a holy seed. Friends, that is Jesus. He picks up this imagery again in Isaiah chapter 11, where he says in verse 1, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Okay, now we know that the stump, the branch, is a him. It's a he. There's a person here. And it says about this person in Isaiah 11 too, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord shall be upon him. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But But with righteousness he shall judge the poor. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Contrite and lowly in spirit, the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked, the enemy. So, here is God saying that I will raise up a stump of Jesse, a holy seed. God is saying here in Isaiah 66 that he will bring something quick in order to restart Zion. So you think about Mary, the mother of Jesus. Uh, She did have a difficult labor. But the point in relating that to this is that it was small, right? It was in a manger. There's a couple angels. There's a heavenly host of angels. But there were some wise men, some other people just kind of not really know what's going on. Celebrated by a few. And then Jesus comes. He grows up and he says that his kingdom will start like a mustard seed. The smallest of the seeds in a garden. Yet grows to be the largest of all garden plants. Thus is God's kingdom. It starts out with one man. And now there are millions who follow and believe and worship this one God man. That's the point of this quick birth. Now look at verses 10 to 13. Zion is now called Jerusalem. Verse 10. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her. All you who love her. Rejoice with carries a sense of with respect to Jerusalem or as you consider Jerusalem, take joy in this. Friends, this is speaking about the people of God, his church, the the Israel of God. Rejoice in his church. And then verse 11 says that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling, her comforting breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. And then we have verse 12. Peace comes to God's church like a river that swells and overtakes a valley. So God's church has peace. And then we see that God's church is cared for like an infant is carried on a mom's hip. Or like Jared back there right now, rocking Winnie. Look at that. That's the imagery that God wants. We have a picture right there. It's just unsafe to put Winnie on the hip right now. That's why he's doing it like that. Support that neck. Uh, Last week at our our members meeting, we had at one point, only I could see it if you're up here, we had had four moms back there just rocking babies like this (laughs) because they wanted to be here and because they wanted their kids to be quiet because their kid had a need. I think it was was Valerie, Madison, Emily, maybe Ruth. Uh, it's, It's a beautiful picture of what God is saying here that he cares for, he nurtures his church when they're in distress. That's what you do when a baby is crying. You kind of gently rock. You put him on, his, on, your, on your knee and you just, just bounce a little bit. That's the way that God cares for his church. Like a tender mother. We often feel distressed like an infant. Don't really know what's going on. And as we grow up, a lot of our distress comes from the fact that we often don't trust God's love for us. But just like an infant being cared for by a tender mother, and just like us who often are distressed, can cry when we don't need to, or untrusting of the one who cares for us ultimately, our Heavenly Father, so God says, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to nurture you. I'm going to feed you. I will comfort you. Verse 13 sums it all up. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. What a beautiful picture. And that's why I love having babies in this room. I'm not opposed to some kind of children's classes, a more more robust system, anything like that. 
Uh, but, it, but it's beautiful to see Megan back there caring for one of her twins, right? And God says, I'm going to give you this picture so you can know what I'm like. I'm tender. I love you. I care for you. Yes, that's talking about me, grown adult Mark Carrington, and you, grown adults. That's how God speaks to us. This comfort, like a mother comforts a wanting child, this peace that flows like a river, this joy that comes from God's word, is in stark contrast to the way God has been toward his people in Isaiah. Something has happened. You see, all throughout Isaiah, God's people have been corrupted, deceitful, proud, arrogant, idol worshipers, sensual, and oppressive. If they're not oppressing others, they're being oppressed and looking like they're oppressors. <laughs> but now they're cared for like an infant. So, so what happened? Look at verse 14. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass and the hand of Yahweh shall be known to his servants and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. Here's what's happened. God has said there's two ways to live. You can be my servant or you can be my enemy. And he clearly divides. There are going to be my servants and there are going to be my enemies. And what's interesting, if you look at the book of Isaiah, stay with me now. This is a little dense, but it's not too dense for you guys. Isaiah, that's not a really condescending. I don't know what, it's not in my notes. That's why you write manuscripts, stick to it, Carrington. All right. He only delights in his chosen servants. Look at Isaiah 42. So I think this is what Austin read earlier. Look at Isaiah 42.1. Behold, my servant, one servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And in the book of Isaiah, this servant takes a prominent place. Like, who is this guy? It's like he's God, but he's also a man. It's so interesting. And then you hit Isaiah 52, verse 13. Flip over there or just listen. The servant's terminology this, this is picked back up. Behold, my servant shall act wisely in Isaiah 52, 13. Okay, the one in whom God's soul delights, he acts wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. All right. Verse 15. He shall sprinkle many nations. 50 through 3 verse 2. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a holy seed or like a stump. And like a root out of dry ground. Verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, we esteemed him not. Verse 4, he bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Look at verse 9 here. They made his grave with the wicked. That means that we did not delight in the servant like God did. But we said, he's wicked. <laughs> Humans said, he's doing work on behalf of Satan. Verse 9, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, right? Is that not Jesus before Pilate? And there is no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put the grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring or his seed. So something happens here in 53.10. This is a guilt, an offering for guilt. And now there's offspring from him and this work, this holy work that the seed does. Verse 11, my servant because of my righteous one, many shall be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Praise God for the work of Jesus Christ. Who through his love, we can have every confidence that God cares for us. And that makes us happy and joyful in him. 
church, never get over the gospel of Christ. If all you do is meet Sunday mornings and you read Isaiah 52 and 53 and show how that is Jesus, well, that's a lot better than a lot of churches. Feast on him. Pray, trust in his word collectively. Give counsel with his word. Open his word so you might see that when you are downtrodden and when you are crushing under the weight of sin, you realize that Jesus paid for your sins. And now he counted you as a brother and a sister. You who are not holy have been made righteous by this work. And friends, this is where true happiness comes from. This is how a church can be happy. There was a preacher in the 1800s named Lachlan McKenzie. And he wrote this little poem about the happy man. He says this about the happy man. He says, he has his breakfast every morning on spiritual prayer. He sups every evening on the same. He has meat to eat that the world knows not of, and his drink is the sincere milk of the word of God. Thus, happy he lives and happy he dies. I love Lachlan McKenzie because no one really knows about him, but he had a, a very quiet and humble ministry in the highlands of Scotland. He was happy because he knew and trusted in God's word. See, in the church is where we can find joy. This is what it means to come to Jerusalem. It means to be involved in your church, to come Sunday morning and to sing God's word, to read God's word, to hear God's word preached, to see God's word through the baptism, uh, uh, through baptism and the Lord's Supper. You see, knowing your love by God brings comfort and peace to weary souls. That's one of the great works of the Reformation. Is that people are comforted now by Christ, the word of God. And God says, I'm going to keep feeding you by my word. The church here is Jerusalem. And Jerusalem here in this text is a church. And that's where God's spirit dwells. It dwells among us. And Jesus says, wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. And that's why we leave here, most of us, happy. Because we just got more of Jesus. So friends, continue to give Jesus to one another. Remind them of the gospel. That's why we have built-in things. In case the preacher, if myself, Philip, Jeff, whoever's preaching just kind of blows it and, and doesn't really give you the gospel in a sermon. Uh, we've, per, we've, we've confessed our sins and we've got an assurance of pardon. And we, ha- we sing songs that are gospel-y. Praise God. Thirdly and lastly, what does it look like for a church to bring glory to God among the nations? A hopeful church in the promises of Christ. A hopeful church in the promises of Christ. Look at verse 15 of Isaiah 66. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. That's, that's sobering. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination of, and mice shall come to an end altogether, declares the Lord. The Lord's saying, I will destroy those who, with their words, say that they follow me, but in their hearts they don't. Verse 18, for I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory. And I will set a sign among them. Resurrection. And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, to Pool, and to Lude, who draw the bow, and to Tubal and Javan. To the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. They shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord. So just pause there. Verse 20. Now, instead of bringing grain offerings, we're bringing what? God's people are bringing people to the Lord. 
You see the missional emphasis here? On horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries, which is a one-humped camel. To my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. Meaning he's saying that that, that there's not just going to be the Levitical priesthood, but Gentiles will be pastors and evangelists and missionaries. Verse 21 or verse 22, for as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. He's saying peoples from every tongue, tribe and nation. When he says all flesh there shall come and worship me. Let me stop before I read verse 24. Friends, this is how each gospel ends. Matthew's gospel. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. The end of, of Mark's gospel closes with this eerie challenge to say, what are you going to do with the news that Jesus is resurrected from the dead? Are you going to keep it or are you going to share it with others? Luke's gospel, uh, before Jesus ascends to heaven, he says to his disciples, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. And in John's gospel, after Jesus rises from the dead, as he's dead, he says to his disciples, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And then the story goes. You see the gospel of Christ, which started out like a mustard seed growing from a handful of confused disciples who love Jesus to a few dozen disciples who are convinced that Jesus rose from the dead. Then to thousands and then to millions throughout history <clears throat> to where we are today. Millions of Jesus worshipers around the globe. And it starts with understanding that a church's health and doctrine is tied to a church's mission. And a church's mission is tied to its health. And so how does Isaiah end? With hope, with robust promise, with encouragement. With a sobering reminder, look at verse 24. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die. Their fire shall not be quenched. And they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. End the great gospel book of Isaiah. This is what Jesus quotes in Mark's gospel when he says, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I think that Isaiah ends, and I especially think that on this side of the cross and the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ with a question for us all. If you who once were an enemy of God are now made a servant of God, what are you going to do with the sobering news that out of God's divine providence, his divine sovereignty, he has chosen you in Jesus. And your fate, your eternity was to be in hell forever where worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. What are you going to do about that Church, what are you going to do with the uncomfortable reality that the Bible says that hell is eternal? Well, I think if we just go back up a few verses, I think we're not supposed to let that doctrine sink us. It's okay to shed tears about it. It's okay to lose sleep about it. <clears throat> but it's not meant to make us hopeless. We are to be hopeful ambassadors of Jesus Christ. That's what the emphasis is in the last book of Isaiah. So that Isaiah 61.1 says, 
The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim, proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Oh, these spiritual realities of our, our good. Be careful, church, Warnell Road, of functional hyper-Calvinism. If you haven't shared your faith in a while, if you haven't prayed for someone to come to faith, if you're not saddened by the state of those who are still under God's wrath, you might be functionally heading and progressing toward a Christianity that is not biblical. Mission ties to health and health ties to mission. And we are meant to be hopeful in the promises of Christ because all of the promises of Christ find their yes and amen in him. All the promises of God. You see, a church ceases to be a Christian church when it stops sharing the gospel. Alexander Duff said this as I conclude, that God wants to bless us for inward prosperity, to be filled up, and for universal extension. That we might extend his kingdom. God's holy, loving, and powerful servant is Jesus Christ. And he's worthy to be proclaimed among all nations. And so on this Reformation Sunday, let me close by quoting one of the reformers, the Scottish reformer John Knox, who said this. I sought neither preeminence, glory, nor riches. My honor was that Christ Jesus should reign. One road, let that be your honor, your boast, your mission. As you love the Bible and as you love sharing the good news of the Bible with those who don't know it. Let's pray. Lord, may we be utterly aware of the schemes of the evil one. who subtly tell us to reject the holy seed, to holy seed, to find our hope and our happiness and our comfort in other places. Oh Lord, humble us that we have eyes to see and behold that we have a contrite and holy spirit before your cross, not in anything we've done, but only in what you've done. And there's if there's anyone here, O oh Lord, that doesn't know you, Lord, may today be the day of salvation, Lord. We pray that you would cause them to see their sin, to see your wrath, and that we would turn from your sin to trust in the resurrected Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.